The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So greetings and um, happy to be here and happy to see that there's already some questions here. Before we start, maybe I can take a few. What is the difference between exploring and contemplating thoughts in insight meditation? When is it useful to do each? It's a great question. Uh, uh, a, a wise life uh, both is mindful of thinking and also uh, is reflective in, uh, with thinking, thinks about things wisely and learns critical thinking skills and, and spends time contemplating subjects, uh, things going on, things that are important for us. The thing is that many people have a strong habit of thinking, and so uh, even when they are going to think about necessary things or useful things to think about, uh, the way that they think uh, is somewhat addictive, and, uh, and it reinforces the strong emphasis that some people have that the thinking is important, we're supposed to think, and reinforces the habit in mindfulness meditation, there's very little we need to think about. And, um, and mindfulness meditation is... Uh, uh, some, t- some teachers like to emphasize the difference, difference between content and process. Uh, with thinking, in mindfulness meditation, we're moving away from content, the things we're thinking about, to being aware of the process of thinking. And so we're not using mindfulness meditation to think better, think deeply, to reflect on things, contemplate things, we're using it to see things. And seeing is a little bit more silent than the, 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 the mind that thinks and, and uh, has conversations. And, and, um, and we're not necessarily getting rid of all thinking and not thinking at all, but it's helpful to maybe distinguish between different kinds or levels of thinking. Uh, there's discursive thinking, which uh, is uh, having a conversation in one's mind, um, holding forth and commentary about things, and that's much more involved and complicated forms of thinking, uh, thinking about the future, thinking about the past. And, uh, and that has uh, really no role in meditation practice. It might at other times in our life. And then there's sim- very simpler kind of thinking that might still be a little bit like in sentences or multiple sentences that are commentary about the present moment experience. And some of that might be a little bit helpful at times to find our way, but we don't want to overdo it. We want to let the thinking become even quieter. And a quieter thinking is to think um, very simple thoughts, uh, uh, maybe of giving yourself instruction, like, well, let me look at, let me feel the breath now. Where's that inhale? Where's that sensation? What are the sensations of inhale? Where does the inhale begin? What happens if I just kind of ride the inhale from beginning to end? So there's very simple kind of instructional sittings, kind of open questions that are encouraging not more thinking, but are encouraging a quieter observation of what the experience is. And then there's quieter thinking even still of it'd be single words, the mental notes. And so we're using the thinking mind, so it's employed, so, but it's very, very simple in support of getting calm and settled and still. The mind can get stiller. 
And that is to use with an inner voice that is a quieting or calming voice to have a single word for maybe a breathing in, in, breathing out, out. Or if there's a desire hindrance that arises, um, in a calm voice, not an alarmed voice, desire. This is desire. This is aversion. This is ill will. As opposed to, oh no, this is terrible. So, so thinking can be part of it, but the, the direction, if we're using thinking as part of meditation, it's all for the purpose of becoming quieter and stiller. All for the purpose of seeing in a, uh, directly the experience and not thinking about it. And, um, and so a lot of discursive thoughts we let go of, we relax, or if we're caught in it, we focus on the process, the activity of thinking, not the content. Outside of meditation, I hope all of us become wiser and wiser thinkers about things and we take time to have tea or go for a walk and, and have uh, profound thoughts. So that maybe took quite a bit of time to answer. Um, and um, so that's the only question I see, so that's convenient. So then uh, I think we'll start. So thank you for being here and uh, coming back. And this is the second to uh, last day of our intro to Mindfulness Meditation Part 2, where we're looking at the hindrances, what hinders clarity, what hinders concentration, what hinders a clear presence and being connected to our life as we live it. And um, it's important, uh, as I've been saying, to not see the hindrances as necessar- uh, as problems, but as them something that turns towards. Uh, if you turn towards a hindrance and really recognize that it's there, it's no longer hindering. Hin- it's a hindrance because it hinders our ability to see what's happening. But if what's happening is desire, is ill will, is sloth and torpor, is restlessness and and worry, or is doubt, and we really see it clearly, oh, this is what's happening, then it's no longer a hindrance. (laughs) Um, Then it's become, it's, it's it's, it's kind of been transformed from the hindrance of desire to just desire. The hindrance of doubt, hindering doubt to just doubt. And, uh, and that's the power of mindfulness, is to transform something from a hindrance into just being itself. And when it's just itself, then we can begin finding our freedom with it, our wisdom with it, and have a different relationship to it. As, soon as, as long as something is a hindrance, meaning it's hindering us, it's hindering us. There's no way of getting around that. And, um, but mindfulness, and that's why we keep coming back with a practice of clear recognition. And we're learning through time how powerful it is to kind of step back and clearly recognizing this is what's happening. We might at first recognize that this is, you know, I'm so restless and it's terrible I'm restless and I shouldn't be restless and what am I going to do about my restlessness? There is a kind of mindfulness, but we're caught up restlessly about the restlessness to step back and, and see, oh, this is restlessness. 
And maybe the first time you're kind of still caught in it. Oh, this is restlessness. But we keep saying it. This is restlessness. Restlessness. Until we kind of see, oh, this is what's happening. No doubt about it. This is clearly what's happening. There's restlessness. But the knowing of the restlessness has become calm. The knowing of the restlessness is not restless about the restlessness or not aversive to the restlessness or, you know, something running away from it. So this, <clears throat> to, over time, to learn this art of the part of mindfulness is, is, that has to do with clear recognition. At that point, a hindrance is no longer hindering. And then we don't call it a hindrance anymore. Then we just call it desire, ill will, Sloth and torpor, restlessness, worry, and doubt. The topic for today is doubt. <clears throat> and there's a long tradition of seeing uh, this uh, particular hindrance. Hang on a minute. There's a long tradition of seeing a doubt as the most dangerous of the hindrances. Because in terms of the meditation practice and maybe other things, because doubt has a way of camouflaging itself, of coming with tremendous authority about what we're doing, questioning it, doubting it, having no confidence about it, uh, not being able to commit to it, thinking there must be another way, there must be something else, not this. And, um, and when doubt is really strong, we don't do the things that we should do, that things are healthy for us or beneficial for us. We might give up on things. Uh, prematurely or unnecessarily. Um, and so from a practice, Buddhist practice point of view, doubt is the most dangerous because if we doubt the practice or doubt ourselves in the practice, we can give it up. We can leave our meditation. We can just stop meditating. We can just walk away. And, um, and I've known people who've had very strong, I know one person who had very strong doubt on a retreat and um, she says she had a multiple hindrance attack, meaning all of them were there, but doubt was the strongest. And she was doing a long, silent residential retreat. And, um, and at some point, she doubted being there, the importance of being there, being uncertain about being there, and decided that it was just not the place for her and, and uh, decided to leave. Flying cross-country back home in the middle of that flight she just suddenly woke up and said, wait a minute, that was a multiple hindrance attack. I got caught up, especially in doubt, and I didn't need to do that, but that got the upper hand on me, and here I am flying home. So that's a kind of dramatic story. But, uh, but this idea of doubt can be very powerful and very ins- uh, kind of has a huge influence on us in a way that can cause a lot of suffering and difficulty. So uh, the word doubt, uh, maybe should be, maybe another word is uncertainty, indecisiveness. So we're uncertain what to do. We don't know what to do. Is it is it? Should I be paying attention to my breathing or should I be doing a loving kindness practice? I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, and uh, should I sit uh, on this retreat or that retreat? Should I read this teacher, listen to that teacher? What should I do here? Is this the right time to, to practice? I don't know if this is the right time to practice. Maybe tomorrow is the right time. Tomorrow comes. No, I don't know. If, I'm not sure what's the right. And 
one of the kind of very insidious doubts that's kind of interesting is having a lot of doubt that the practice is going to work, that I can do the practice, for example. I don't know if I can do it. This practice is not good practice. I don't know if it's for me. I don't think it's going to work. If we're caught up in the hindrance of doubt with those thoughts spinning around and going, you know, a mile a minute, then it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Of course it's not going to work if we're spinning out in thoughts like that. And so there's a kind of a paradox or irony that the very questioning about this or doubting that this is going to work or thinking this is not going to work is the very thing that causes it not to work, so-called. And then people give up the practice. I think it's useful to distinguish uh, between hindering doubt and questioning doubt. There is doubt which is healthy to have. There is doubt. There is health, doubt that questions things. Is this really true? What I'm hearing, I don't know about this. Let me question it and reflect on it and think, study it and see if I, or, or, you know, what's what I think really works for me or what is true. Um, the difference between hindering doubt and questioning doubt: hindering doubt disconnects us from experience, pulls us away, shuts us down, creates a veil creates a distance in our, in our ability to see and be present for something. Questioning doubt in a healthy way uh, is one that opens us, moves us towards something, uh, engages us to look more carefully, more deeply. So that, uh, that's how we distinguish between the two. And I think questioning doubt, uh, that often involves thinking outside of meditation and thinking about things and questioning and all kinds of things. It's a healthy thing to do. But, uh, but being very careful, is it, does it involve uncertainty? Does it involve indecisiveness? Is it kind of a... This hindering doubt <clears throat> tends to be very discursive. It tends to be a lot of thinking and ideas. And this is where mindfulness of thinking becomes very useful. As the basic instruction practice I gave in part one, included uh, instructions for how to be mindful of thoughts and thinking. As we get skilled in recognizing thinking, the different kinds of thinking, we start feeling that certain ways of thinking are distancing. A certain way of thinking disconnects me from myself, disconnects me from what's going on. A certain kind of thinking gets me up my head and spinning around in an agitated way. And I'm not settled, I'm kind of, kind of agitated. And as we learn something about the quality and the effect of thinking has on us, then we can see at some point that certain way of thinking, the process of thinking, is not so useful. It's not settled, it's not relaxed, it's tense, it's agitated. And rather than judging the kind of thoughts or being concerned with what we're thinking, we can see this is not a healthy way to be, to be always so tense in my thoughts. Let me get reconnected. Let me come back to breathing. Let me do the three-breath journey. Let me settle down. Let me kind of find a... Let the mind, the thinking mind, settle down so my my thinking can rest in the mind, rest in the brain, or rest inside of me. I can still think, but I'm not, uh, you know, spinning out and caught up in them. 
So if we can learn to recognize the difference, difference between settled, easeful, relaxed thoughts, thinking, and agitated ones, then we have a better opportunity to notice when we're in doubt. And a better ability to question the validity of what doubt is saying or the authority of it that we're supposed to be caught up in all these thoughts. And instead of being staying caught, we can try to settle the mind. And one way to say it to oneself is to the thoughts, let me consider you later. Let me first get settled. You might have some interesting point. You might be some validity about this doubt that there. But thinking about it in an agitated way is not helpful. Let me calm down and settle down. And once I'm settled and reconnected, then let's look at it. And chances are that when we get really settled, um, if the doubt is kind of uh, hindering doubt or uh, involves this kind of fear-based uncertainty or fear-based questioning, then, um, and if that's, that's quieted, then we'll think about it more accurately, more usefully. We might feel in the calmness of our being that there is a natural confidence to practice. There is a, f- a feeling in the calmness of, all oh, this is right to do this, to practice this way. When we're agitated and caught up in these thoughts of doubt or caught up in fear and caught up in um, expectation and striving and wanting something else, um, it's very uncomfortable. And um, and it, it uh, you know, it, lends itself to a lack of confidence. And it's hard to find confidence in those states. So to repeat what I said, to learn the basic practice of mindfulness, including learning how to be skillful and to recognize thinking and the quality of thinking we have, can show us when the ways in which we're thinking is not really that useful. And not dismissing what we're thinking about, but knowing that it's useful to calm down, to settle. And then maybe reconsider what the concern is. But then we consider it from a very different vantage point and we might see the situation very differently from this new, calm, settled vantage point. Um, sometimes doubt arises when we have our goal in practice is too grand. We have very lofty goals or expectations So it could be as simple as, for this meditation session, I'm going to not, uh, I'm going to be with every breath and not miss one, not wander away at all. That might be too big of of a goal. And so, because with that kind of expectation that you can do that, um, and then the mind keeps wandering off, even if it wanders off only 10 times in the 40-minute meditation session, Um, it might be discouraging and we start having doubt about, can I do this? Is this the right practice? Maybe I should do something else. And and it had a lot to do with it was an unrealistic goal. To be the full time with every breath in the sitting maybe is unrealistic until the mind is really well settled and concentrated. So what can be helpful is to have a much more modest goal. It might be uh, to do the three breath journey. Maybe we can have confidence that you can more or less do the three-breath journey and then you do it again. 
and then you do it again. And, and then that, that might build confidence. I can do the three-breath journey. I know how to do that. And if three breaths is too much, then maybe just be satisfied with one breath. If one breath is too much, just do the inhale and then do the exhale. And, and build confidence on these small steps. And with small steps, it builds over time. Don't set up too big of a goal, high expectations, so you're guaranteed to have self-doubt. Be content with the small goals, being present for this, this moment, this moment. Um, a, a walk up a very high mountain is done one step at a time. Each step, stepping, stepping, going, you know, the goal of practice, Buddhist practice is pretty, you know, great, pretty lofty in a sense. Um, but it's the way there is only one step at a time. And that's where the confidence gets built up over time. The other thing that's helpful for doubt, I said, you know, understanding and being sensitive to the different ways, qualities of thinking is helpful. The same thing, it's useful as we develop practice to become a connoisseur of the quality of our physical being, of how we feel in our body, uh, where what gets tight, what gets agitated in our body, uh, what gets um, collapses in our body, uh, where the energy in the body goes, and start recognizing what's happening in the body, because that can be very quickly a, a first clue that somehow we're losing touch with ourselves. I've been sitting and meditating and feeling very connected, very grounded, kind of like the energy in some ways of attention, of awareness was centered in my torso, in my belly, and kind of felt very stable. And then I had one single thought come up that was so captivating and arousing that this, I almost feel like this energy inside whooshes up into my head. You know, wow, you know, and with some emotion or some preoccupation or thought. And to have become, notice that difference, that change of how things change, what's activated. Um, oh, I, this is a time to be mindful. I think I just kind of, something radically changed. Let me be cautious here. Let me bring attention to what just happened. And, and, uh, and if I don't do that, then uh, it's very easy to get pulled into those world of thinking. So to more familiar you become with your body and the changes in your body, able to track it, the more you get the clues that supports you to notice when you get pulled into doubt. So what I'm, what I'm pointing to here is not directly addressing the subject of the doubt, but rather addressing uh, how we feel mentally and physically and maybe emotionally when doubt happens. Turning the attention back on that and then looking at this carefully and maybe settling it, relaxing it. Now, some doubts we have <clears throat> maybe um, can't be settled that way. Some doubts, uh, maybe about the practice, about the teachings, uh, it's best to go and find someone to talk to about. It could be a friend. Sometimes just talking it out and hearing ourselves talk, we understand, we come to a better understanding ourselves. Or maybe the friend has some perspective to offer. Or go talk to a teacher. And it might sometimes, uh, doubts are very valid to have. 
and those can be clarified in talking with the teacher. So, um, <clears throat> so doubt, uncertainty, and indecisiveness can come up in this practice. And when it does, it is just as a valid focus of attention as anything else. It's just as valid there to step back and clearly recognize, oh, this is doubt. This is indecisiveness. This is uncertainty. And keep a kind of relaxed, open, step back, recognizing there until you start feeling that you're a little bit free or a little bit uh, separated from the doubt itself. You're not entangled with it. It's almost as if the, uh, this the metaphor of stepping back and uh, stepping away and looking back at where you were or looking back at what was there and, um, and then seeing it from some objective distance and not being entangled and caught in it. The metaphor that I like, uh, a little more uh, visual for this idea, is being with a group of people who are, all of them arguing, talking at once, you're participating in the, the whole thing. And for some reason, you have a reason to step away 10 feet, 15 feet, and then uh, you turn around and look at them. You're no longer participating in the animated conversation and argument, but now you're just watching it. And you say, wow, that's a lot of energy over there. Wow, they're really caught up. And it feels kind of nice to be away from the fray and just kind of watching it and looking at it. <clears throat> and maybe you care for it, you're not being aloof, but um, this stepping away, oh, doubt is happening. That's, this is doubt. Clear recognition. So with that, maybe we could do a, our meditation today. <clears throat> and... Um, And I'll say, before we do, one more thing about doubt. If a doubt is not too strong, and we recognize it, sometimes it can be useful to use discipline to settle it, to overcome it. To just say, okay, I know there's doubt there. I'm just going to be committed to just being with my breath, just doing my practice. And not give it a lot of energy, not give the doubt a lot of attention or energy but put the attention energy on just doing the practice. <clears throat> and if uh, you don't have enough confidence in the practice, that's what doubt can mean, but you may be thinking, I'm going to try just being disciplined, then what you might also do, if, if it makes sense for you, is to borrow the confidence of another practitioner. Maybe you know a person, another meditation practitioner, or you know a teacher, and they seem to have a lot of confidence. And so try to borrow it. Try to kind of pick it up and kind of, you know, borrow it. Uh, it's like, okay, if they have confidence, I'm going to borrow theirs and really give myself over for these minutes that I'm here and see if that can overcome this minor doubt that I'm caught in. <clears throat> so I will offer you my tremendous confidence in this practice as we do this meditation. So, uh, if you can take a meditation posture, and for this purpose today, you might take a posture 
that expresses confidence. If you can do that without any tension, sitting with confidence and gently closing your eyes, and taking the three breath journey, counting to three, one for each of the next three breaths. Then maybe doing it again, this time and taking some fuller breaths as you, three full breaths in a gentle way. Breathing in fully and, and exhaling fully. And then letting your breathing return to normal. And taking a little bit of time now to look around your body, feel around your body for any place where you feel tense or the muscles are held tight. And see as you exhale whether you can relax that a bit. And if it's not easy to relax, it's fine. doesn't matter too much. But maybe relaxation means being accepting of yourself as being tense. The shoulders are tense. And if they don't relax, the relaxation is in the mind, accepting the fact that there's tension in the shoulders. And then one more thing to do in preparation here. And if you could <clears throat> look around your body, and is there any place in your body that you associate with confidence? That is a place of confidence. Some people, it can be their feet, their legs, some people, their hands, some people, the chest, the heart, some people, it's the belly area, wherever it is for you. 
let yourself kind of explore and feel that part of your body where you feel some kind of confidence. Doesn't have to be strong or dramatic. And even if what you discover approximates confidence, that's good enough. Perhaps breathing with this place, feeling or imagining that you breathe in and out through this place of confidence. And then maybe with some perfume of confidence in the background, let yourself settle in to the experience of the body breathing. Perhaps as you exhale, letting go of your thoughts, quieting your thoughts and letting go into the exhale, letting go into breathing.
rather than trying to attain something in meditation, to make something happen, maybe you can allow your meditation to be very simple, to simply recognize what is happening. And then try to have that recognition be relaxed, calm, but also clear. And allow the recognition to be recognizing what is easy and obvious to recognize, as opposed to thinking about it, analyzing it. And if it's not clear what's happening, it's completely appropriate for the mental note to be something. Something is happening. To be clear, oh yeah, something is happening. I don't know what it is, but something is happening. And that might be all you need to do to be mindful. And this central role that recognizing has means that the practice is successful each time, each moment, where there is some kind of clear recognition.
then as you're sitting here now, is there any degree of doubt, even if it's very teeny, any uncertainty, any indecisiveness, And if there is, recognize it as such. And as you recognize it, notice what influence it has on your thinking, on your feelings, or on your body. And if there is any subtle forms of doubt and indecisiveness or uncertainty, feel it in the body, feel it in the mind. Notice the quality of the thinking. Notice the quality of your, of the process of your body and mind involved in doubt thoughts without giving too much attention to the content of the doubt.
as you exhale, release yourself into the exhale. Allow the release, the letting go of the exhale to continue to the very end of the exhale. Not straining to do so, but relaxing to do so. And then to end this sitting in a gentle, kind way to take a few longer, slower breaths as if you're waking yourself up from meditation in a shower of kindness, of caringness. Breathing in deeply, letting go as you exhale. As if you're stepping into the world again with kindness, with care, with calmness. Having let go of doubt the best you can. Maybe opening your eyes now with eyes of trust, of confidence. So, one of the important or significant causes or conditions for the arising of doubt is fear. And part of the path of mindfulness 
is to learn to become well familiar with how anxiety and fear works for us. And that takes being willing to stop and look at fear. Perhaps the bumper, bumper sticker for mindfulness practitioners is, I stop for fear. Because stop and look and get to know it. Because that's one way to become free of fear. Not free because it's absence, but free because we're no longer caught by it or limited by the fear we have. One way to do that is to study it, get to know it, understand it, and understand ourselves in relationship to it. So fear uh, can come up as a doubt. There can be fear of how we're going to be changed by meditation, fear of altered states of mind, fear of um, really looking at ourselves deeply, and uh, uncertain, doubtful whether that's really worth doing or can I do it. So to, if we can, when there's a lot of doubt, sometimes you want to ask yourself, is there fear? And then uh, one of the, I think one of the powerful things to do when there's anxiety and fear is a regular companion for oneself. It's likely that that fear needs something from you. Rather than dismissing it or trying to fix it or trying to solve it or trying to analyze it, try to talk talk yourself out of it. Sometimes, you know, this powerful thing we do in mindfulness of turning around and looking at something and really recognizing it, there it is, this is fear. But more, it might be important, once we do that, can really see it there. Maybe the fear needs something from us. And one of the things that fear often needs, uh, our fear, especially anxiety, and chronic fear that, you know, goes gone on for years. It needs to feel safe. And our task is to help our fear feel safe. And that means that if you're trying to fix it, get away from it, you're embarrassed by it, you're angry at it, you're trying to, you know, you know, overcome it it's not going to feel safe. It's going to feel like it's not wanted. It's going to feel like it's wrong or something. But to imagine that with the soft palms of mindfulness, you come from underneath the fear. You find where it is in the body, feel the sensations of it, really recognize it as a physical aspect of fear, and come with awareness and just hold it in the soft palms of awareness. And try to make it feel safe. And, you know, one of the great mantra to do this is say to it, it's okay. You don't have to explain what is okay. It's a very powerful mantra. It's okay. And one of the things you're trying to convey to the fear, it's okay to be afraid. I'm here with you. I'll protect you. It's okay for you to be afraid right now. And when fear starts to feel safe, then it begins to thaw. Then it begins to open up. Then it begins to relax. And some of our problems we have in life and problems, some things we're afraid of, are not things that need to be solved, but rather it represents something that needs to dissolve. And if we're always solving, we don't allow this deeper inner personal process of dissolving happening. That can happen if we get out of the way while at the same time holding it in awareness. So experiment with that. Those of you who have chronic fear or anxiety, and it's a regular companion, 
Uh, it's very common for humans to have that. It's a completely worthwhile and useful uh, object for mindfulness, fear, and you can develop a lot of mindfulness, strengthen it with fear as a subject. But see if you can um, uh, hold it and help it feel really feel safe. F- like Maybe like you've never done this before, allow the fear to have its time in the sun, in the sun of awareness. So I say this because sometimes doubt uh, come, is prompted by fear, and the real issue is not the doubt, is the underlying fear, and to look at that. So we have about 10 minutes before the end, and um, I can take some questions if you'd like to offer, ask some and try to respond to something that's particularly useful for some of you. And, um, and while we're waiting for the questions, I could say that um, tomorrow's the last day for this uh, hindrance series. And, um, and there has been some requests for an introduction to mindfulness meditation part three. And one person sent a very nice message uh, suggesting that that could be in the, what in the Buddha's teachings called the seven factors of awakening, which is... Um, the Buddha's teaching, uh, it's kind of these two teachings, the hindrances and the seven factors of awakening are kind of paired up like two sides of a seesaw. And as the hindrances go down, these seven factors, good factors of mind get stronger. When the hindrances get stronger, the seven factors of awakening disappear. And, um, and so the Buddha clearly paired them up that way. And um, so it might make a next one. So I'll think about it, about doing it and... I might need to wait a while now. Maybe I maybe have to wait until June. Um, and uh, we'll see. You can look at IMC's website to see if, uh, you know, keep an eye on the schedule there. Um, so, so that answers one of the questions that was here. Uh, thank you, Gil. Any doubts, any insights on how to handle overwhelming thoughts of doubt about the future. Well, chances are there's a lot of fear then if they're overwhelming. And maybe what it needs addressed is the fear about it. And, um, and uh, if it's really overwhelming, uh, what you might do is write your fears down, write your doubts down, and, um, and maybe do a kind of stream of consciousness writing uh, about what you're afraid of. And, um, and then after you've done it for that for maybe 15, 20 minutes, you might um, go back and reread it a few times or maybe even um, copy those doubts down on a second piece of paper. And just getting them out on paper and being really clear about them might give your mind a different relationship to them. Uh, you might understand them in a different way. Um, something I've done in the past uh, when I had, a, not doubt so much, but I was really troubled by something and uh, a lot of grief and sadness, um, uh, when I was driving and I was alone, um, I would talk to myself out loud about it. And I found that um, I had, when I talk out loud, I access a different part of my mind when I talk, when I, when I quietly think to myself. And it turned out that uh, there's, uh, I, uh, there's more clarity, more wisdom, more objectivity, more access to a wider intelligence uh, sometimes in talking out loud than just getting caught up in the mental chatter that goes on. So writing, journaling, uh, uh, talking out loud might give you more clarity and a little bit caught, not caught so much in it. And it might give you an opportunity to 
think more wisely about what you're doing. So if you're overwhelmed by the future and you're constantly reading the news, um, stop reading the news. Most news is actually olds. Things haven't really changed so much in the thousands of years. It's just olds uh, in a different uh, form, a different shape. And, um, and uh, so it might be helpful just not to read so much, um, for example. Okay, I'd appreciate anything you have to say about trust. So trust, I love the word trust. Uh, I like it more than faith, for example. Um, and, um, and trust, you know, what, can I, what can I say about it? Um, certainly trust is confidence, but tr- uh, trust uh, is a openness and allowing that there's something good here, that something is right here, something is supportive here. And, the, and you don't just trust blindly or trust anything, but uh, to trust mindfulness, to trust meditation, to sit in meditation and learn that being clearly recognizing what's happening, being present for what's happening in the present and kind of opening to it, keep opening to it. Um, that's a very trustable process, meaning it's okay to open to it, it's okay to allow it to move through us. Good things come when we open up and move, allow it to move through it. Even if what happens is more intense and more difficult at first, to, I've learned you can trust that process. Keep opening. So this, so trust for me has this connotation of uh, it, uh, it's okay to hang in there with this. Something is supporting us. Something is moving through right now. That's not always the case in all human situations. But if you practice mindfulness, most situations work out for the best. That's what I find. But that means really practicing mindfulness and not kind of getting tripped up by reactivity. So, um, I have a a doubt when I use raft and bella during meditation. Well, um, maybe you need some clarification about how this practice of raft or the practice of bella work. And you need to ask some questions or or to sit down and and, uh, come up with different explanations for these or different understandings or different ac- acronyms even for yourself that work for you. Uh, you don't have to stick to actually what I'm teaching. And the other thing is um, uh, maybe you, know, you say, I have doubt when I use these practices during meditation. Maybe um, what really needs attention is to turn away from the, those practices and focus on the doubt itself. Just be mindful of doubt until the doubt has abated and quiet. And then you can use uh, these other practices in some way. And, um, and also, uh, you know, uh, these uh, practices I give that I give with the acronym RAFT, which I did in the part one of the Intro to Meditation class, and then BELLA for this one, um, they don't always the best thing to use. So even though I've taught them, I think they're useful, uh, useful for me and for many people, uh, even you know, not it's not always the right call and what's needed for me, and um, and sometimes I shouldn't be trying so hard. Sometimes I shouldn't try to always be doing practice and techniques to try to figure out how to make it work and get ahead, and find my way. Sometimes, um, you know, you you, you want mindfulness is not so much about 
about uh, getting something or acquiring something or becoming something, the heart of mindfulness is this recognition. Just clearly recognize. And this Bella and Raft are supports for what to recognize, but not meant to get over something. So maybe your doubt has something to do with using them as a technique or, or avoiding what's really happening, or maybe you're using them too much. And sometimes you just want to sit peacefully with what is, even if it's difficult. I can't find the archived versions of this series of talks. Um, it um, should be on YouTube. We have it on the YouTube channel for IMC. I think it's called Insight Med. Um, but you can get to it through IMC's website. Um, on, on the YouTube channel, there's a thing called Playlists. And under Playlists, I think it should be there uh, as its own playlist, the Introduction to Meditation playlist. Uh, on um, Audio Dharma, because we, do, uh, we are doing the audio recording, um, uh, it should be there, but it's not in any kind of list. It just kind of, you have to look by the date, my name and by the date, or my, you know, if, or if you just do the, uh, yeah, so if you do hindrance as a search, you can probably find it. Um, and I might have missed one uh, of the, there might be one talk that's missing from Audio Dharma that hasn't made it up yet. Thank you for differentiating the two kinds of doubt. I was not able to articulate them before, and now I feel more legitimate in having questioning doubts and test them out. Great. And um, the guided meditations that relate to the topic each day have been helpful. How do we transition that to meditating on our own without guidance? Great question. Um, you could re-listen to some of these for a while until they become a little more second nature and more familiar with it so you know how to do it for yourself. Um, or you alternate days, uh, one day alone, one day with guided meditation, so that you're experimenting and exercising your ability to find your own way. And uh, in the long term, you want to find your own way. You, in the long term, you want to become your own teacher. Um, so yes, transitioning is actually part of the process but how you do that, um, it's probably individual for each person. And if you ask yourself that question, uh, maybe the answer will come easier if you think of this path of mindfulness as being a path of trial and error. There'll be plenty of error, you know, because, oh, that, not, that didn't quite work. But try trial and error, see what works for you. Because one of the principles of m- mindfulness meditation of Buddhism is uh, is to is the question is it helpful what I'm doing, and is it helpful for in the Buddhist terminology, uh, is it helpful in in the process of becoming free? How does procrastination lie in the hindrances? Yeah, I don't think I've ever thought about this, but thinking about it now. Um, Maybe there's, uh, it's, it might be interesting to look at when there's procrastination to see if, if any one of the hindrances underlie it. I could well imagine that aversion, you know, a resistance uh, might be there. Kind of, I don't want to do that. Um, there could be desire to enjoy the comfort of my, or is, you know, whatever I'm doing. And I don't want to leave that. I'm going to hold on to it. And that's why I don't do something which is more uncomfortable, perhaps. 
It could be sloth and torpor. It could be there's too much restlessness to get started, uh, worry. And there could be um, that there's a lot of doubt. And, um, and so you might look and see, uh, um, you know, underlying it, procrastination. What's your recommendation for staying open with fear and not closing down during meditation? Thank you. Um, You know, the question of trust before, uh, when there's a lot of fear, and some fear is really strong, some people have terror inside of them, and and, uh, things happen in life that there's good reason why people have very strong fear that lives in them and can be reawakened pretty easily. So it takes a lot of care and wisdom if that's the case. And, and, um, and so then uh, there are times when it's por- important to practice uh, at the speed of trust. You don't have to go any faster than the degree to which you have trust and confidence that you can be with what's going on. And don't go dip into f- to fear or strong fear unless you have the trust to do that. And of course, fear represents a lack of trust but uh, you don't only go into it with, at the speed of trust. And if it even takes days, weeks, years, take your time with it. Um, and, uh, and don't think that you have to stay open to fear uh, continuously. Sometimes it's enough and very powerful, very useful to open to it briefly, maybe that's okay to do, and then step away and reground oneself, recenter oneself, even if you have to distract yourself for a few minutes, open your eyes and look around, come back into your body, and get centered again. And then at some point, when you feel like you have enough trust, enough confidence, enough you know, stability, then go and t- open to it again. But don't go very, you know, if it's a, it's a big issue in your life, don't go for very long. Just tap into it. And uh, I've sometimes given people the instructions to imagine awareness is like soft cotton balls. And just come and tap the fear very gently and then pull away. And then over time, things might open and, and, uh, and it feels safer to go deeper and deeper into it. When the trust is there, then we can open more and more and more. And it be, we feel like, oh, I can do this, I can do this. Sometimes when really difficult fear, it's the fear of fear which is the big issue. And, uh, and so we wait until we trust that it's okay to be with a fear. And then in terms of you know, paying attention to the obvious or paying attention to what's the, the primary thing, uh, sometimes what's useful is to not to bring attention to what we're afraid of or to the to primary, the central fear, but rather to, to bring mindfulness to the fear of the fear. And once that fear of the fear has quieted down, then it might be easier to be present for the, the central fear. Is it possible that your experience, that you experience at the same time desire and aversion towards the same object situation? I, th- I think it might be, and this leaves one very confused. Yeah, I think so. <clears throat> I think... Uh, Confusion, yeah, that's a part of human life, and it's easy to get confused, and and uh, easy to have many multiple conflicting kind of things going on at the same time. Uh, one could have a strong desire for a committed relationship and a lot of aversion to it, and fear, and 
and that that confusion around wanting and being in, and pulling away, pulling forward and putting, pulling away, can be not only confusing for you, but I'm not saying this is for your your issue, but it can also be confusing the people you're with. And um, confusion is not a sin, is not a crime. What we're trying to do in mindfulness is to live an honest life. And if what we really feel is confusion, really stay with that. Oh, this is confusion. If you're in a relationship or doing something in the world where an honest relationship is what's needed, then um, uh, be honest about the confusion. It might be a very different interpersonal process uh, talk about the confusion around desire and aversion than to talk about either one by themselves. I think people are more sympathetic if they realize you're confused. So I'm not sure if that addressed the question, but I maybe apologize if I didn't. That's what occurred to me kind of extemporaneously. Um, I think the the chat thing is jumping around a little bit, so I apologize that maybe I'm not reading them in order. Oh, how to deal with delusion in general and in doubt, re- and in doubt related thought? I think delusion can be treated very similar to uh, practice with very similar to how I've been talking about doubt today. Um, but I think one of the one of the ways of recognized delusion. And it, to recognize delusion, it really helps to have a quiet mind. And so to know when your mind is not quiet and know how to get some semblance of a quieter mind, a more settled mind, um, more mindful mind. Because if your mindful is strong enough or mind is quiet enough, you can see the beginning point of a rising thought. And if you can see a thought when it first arises, then you're more likely to notice it. It's just a thought. And you can put a question mark next to it. Is this accurate? So, for example, there can be some um, uh, delusion about some other person. You have a judgment about a person and uh, or a bias about a person. But if you can notice when that bias, that judgment comes just up for the first time, uh, then there might be enough space to put a question mark. And uh, is this really so? And you look more carefully to see if it's the case, to see if you're uh, operating on some kind of bias or preconceived idea or something, prejudice or something. So uh, working with delusion, uh, to, to just talk to someone who's spinning around their thoughts and agitated and all that, that, you know, notice your delusion, it's very hard to do. But uh, if you practice, if you really want to get underneath and really want to not live a deluded life, uh, become calm. If you become calm, then you can be wise about it and see how it operates. Um, perhaps tomorrow you could address best way to deal with our suffering sense of loss due to impermanence of people of things we love. People people and things we love, we lose them. They, people die, things disappear. Yeah, 
sometimes um, the lear- this mindfulness practice, learning to be present honestly what's there, but without resistance, without clinging, without being for or against, learning to trust just being open to it, might be that um, uh, uh, sense of loss, the grief, can, um, what's needed is, uh, what's best is just to let our hearts break. Sometimes this life of ours is heartbreaking. And I've certainly learned um, uh, through this practice uh, to allow my heart to break many times. Sometimes it breaks many times a day. And, um, and, um, and I've learned to kind of be at ease with that and just allow it. And in doing so, it's kind, of, there's kind of, it's kind of a clean or it's kind of clear or it's kind of, I don't get stuck in it so much. And I don't see it as wrong or a mistake. Uh, I did give a talk uh, two days ago on Monday, Monday evening here at I, IMC, um, on grief. But in particular, uh, addressing what's going on with COVID-19 and tremendous amount of grief and loss that's going on. And, and I think many people ha- are feeling uh, some level of grief these days. And it's a, you know, so that if you might want to listen to that talk and, Maybe that would be nice for you, helpful. So, this is great. I very much appreciate the questions, the thank yous, the uh, little statements about this has been useful for you to do this. And I I feel, uh, you know, two months ago, I never would have thought that I could be talking to a camera and uh, and with a computer on and and felt such warmth and from all of you and also my warmth for you and my care and my sense of connectedness and my delight at what we're doing here and how we are together. So I thank you all very much for this time and this opportunity and uh, look forward to uh, being with you again uh, tomorrow. Thank you.